0: Kaylin, and thank you, Dr. Long, for that reminder that our God is pleased to use the the weak and the elementary things of this world to to do great things. And we're going to be reminded of that uh, in our passage today. So it's a perfect lead-in to what we want to study here in Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open there. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39 the, the more perceptive of you will know that this is not the first time that I have tried to preach this sermon. Um, two weeks ago I was this is where we were going to be and and the Lord had other plans. So um, I don't, if, if Sam was correct in his theory that the second time it would be better around this is not technically the, set, the second time but maybe, maybe some time will, to marinate will make it even better. I don't know it may just make it longer. I, we'll see what happens. So Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Let's hear God's word together. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, "Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days." He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled the skins will be destroyed but new wine must be put into fresh wine skins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God it stands forever let's pray together father as we consider now this portion of your holy word uh, we pray your blessings on this time Uh, we pray that you would be pleased to meet with us and Lord, that you would speak the, the truth of these words, your words, to our hearts, so that we might be transformed, that we might be changed, and that we might see our Savior clearly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Feasting and fasting. Well, When Renee and I were still in college, one of the first real jobs I ever had Uh, was as a copy machine salesman, and when I heard about this job, I thought, well, this is the ideal job for me, right? So the the guy, he told me, he said, you know, you're going to get to go out, you're going to get to build relationships and meet new people and and sell a product that everybody needs, and y'all know me, I like to meet new people, and I like to make relationships, and I like to give people what they need. So this was like the ideal job until I actually went out and tried to sell a copy machine, um, after about two weeks of making cold calls, I realized that I was terrible. I mean, I was really bad. Um, I figured out that office managers and business owners, they don't really want to have to stop their day to talk about a coffee machine that they really don't need. Uh, and the truth is, they'd rather you not show up at all. And so I decided fairly quickly when I realized that I was a nuisance to people Uh, that I didn't have the desire, or at least I didn't have the guts, uh, to try to convince them otherwise. Uh, It became evident quickly that this was not the right job for me. I was not the right man for that job. I was no salesman. Now that's a long way around to get to my point, but I think all of us, whether we have been in a situation like mine, a job that we were not cut out for, or whether you have hired somebody to do a job and found that they were not the right person, we know the truth that if you want the job done right, you need the right person to do the job. If I want embroidery, I'm going to go to TSA Embroidery. If I need my car fixed, I'm going to go see Mr. Milton. If I need distributing supplies, I'm going to go see Walt. I'm going to see the Henson's, right? I'm not going to take my taxes to any of those people. I'm going to take them to Bradley. If we want it done right, you need the right person for the job. But as we turn to our passage today, as we see what Luke describes here about our Savior, I think we realize that, that maybe Jesus doesn't exactly buy into that motto. Over the last few weeks in our study of Luke, we, we've seen as he has called his first followers and as he has called his first disciples. And I want you to think about that. If you were going to pick a group of people to represent you to the world, what kind of people would you pick? Well, I imagine you would pick the ones who are most charismatic, the ones who are most influential, Uh, the ones who could represent you in the best possible way in every area, right? They had strong character. They made you look really, really good. Think about the people that Jesus has picked up until this point and the ones that he will pick after this. We've already seen him choose Peter, James, and John, these men who were most likely uneducated, men who had no influence whatsoever, men who were just simple fishermen. Later we're going to see him call Thomas a doubter, Judas a traitor, even later Paul a persecutor, a murderer. And here today we see him call Levi a tax collector. I was with with Miss Tamri the other day and I was like Miss Tamri I'm going to talk about tax collectors you really need to come to church but she didn't do that. So anyway uh, that's a side note. But you wouldn't think it, that after that, that list of people that I just gave you, you wouldn't think tax collector would be that high up on the list of people that were disdained. But, but Levi may have been the worst one of the group, at least from a public perception kind of, of thing. Uh, as, as Ben told the kids, uh, his was a job uh, that was given by the Roman government. Uh, it was a job where he could collect however much he wanted to, and if he got a little bit of extra... He could stick it in his pocket, Uh, and so it was a job that encouraged corruption. It was a job that that encouraged people to be liars and thieves and greedy, and so tax collectors tended to be people who were despised. Everyone saw them as robbers, but the Jews particularly didn't like them because they saw them as traitors to the Roman government, and they also saw them as unclean because they had so much dealings uh, with the Gentiles. And so these were not people that you would want to be your friend. These were not people that you would want in your home, much less being your disciples, much less representing you to the world. They had the trifecta. They were morally, socially, and religiously corrupt. And so it should be shocking to us that here as this passage begins, that as Levi sits in his booth counting his ill-gotten money, That Jesus walks by and he says to him, follow me. Of all the people that Jesus could have stopped and talked to, he talks to Levi and he says, follow me. Now we're going to come back to that. So I want you to keep those two words in mind. I want you to keep that in mind that, that he was the least likely person for the job. But for a moment, I want you to just stop and think of the significance of those two words, what they mean for us in our salvation, in the salvation that Jesus has brought to us. First, notice, who is it that takes the initiative here in the salvation of Levi? Not Levi, is it? Again, he's just sitting in his booth doing what tax collectors do. He doesn't come out and say, hey, Jesus, come over here and talk to me. He doesn't stop long enough to to try to figure out who this is. Instead, Jesus sees him. He stops, and he chooses to call him. Salvation is always a work of God's free and sovereign grace. Now, somebody will say, well, what about a couple weeks ago when we saw the leper and the paralytic? Didn't they come pursuing Christ? And in a sense, they they did, right? Right? but what does the story say that both of them showed up with faith right Jesus heals the paralytic he says your faith has has made you well your sins are forgiven and the leper comes and he says Lord if you are willing you can he had faith that Jesus could do what he sought now our youth again they're studying Ephesians right now so y'all what does it say in Ephesians 2 that faith is where does it come from it's a gift of God right Ephesians 2.8 is the gift of God. And so even in those men, God had taken the initiative. The Spirit had drawn them in. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us, again, Ephesians, are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And so if Christ does not pursue us, if he does not come and get us, None of us will come. But the grace of the gospel, the good news, is that he does come and get us. We are that one lost sheep. And he comes. He's pleased to meet with us and come and make us his own, as he does for Levi here. Secondly, notice not only the initiative, but notice the power of the call itself. It's effectual, right? It does what it is set out to do. He says, follow me. And Levi does it, him and hall. He doesn't say, I don't know, maybe I won't do this. Maybe I'll keep counting my money. Maybe I'll go do something else. He doesn't consider all that he is about to give up. Instead, there in verse 28, it says that he left everything and he rose and followed Christ. Again, it's a reminder to us that when Jesus calls, his sheep hear his voice and he loses none that the Father has given him because when he speaks... They follow him. His his call regenerates. It, It transforms our lives. And you see that clearly in Levi here, right? He turns his back on his sin. There's a break with his old way of life. And he's given a new purpose. You see that purpose take shape as he prepares this great feast. And who does he call in? Who does Levi invite to the feast? Jesus, obviously, but who else? Well, people who are just like him, right? He invites in the sinners and the tax collectors, people he knows need to hear the good news. And who is right there at the table with him? Jesus is there, right? Friends, what what a joy it is to consider this salvation, to know that even now Jesus is here meeting with us, and he is pleased to save just like he saved Levi. He is pleased to call us. He is pleased to choose us. He is pleased to transform us, to make us his own, to give us a new purpose so that we can go out and we can do what Levi has done, to invite people in so that they too may hear the good news. This is the truth of the salvation that Jesus has brought to every one of us. Now, obviously Jesus is there, and it's not surprising, or it shouldn't be surprising to us to find that as he sits around that table, the Pharisees are up in arms about it, right? That's how they usually are, and they are that way here. And so we read there in verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now the Pharisees, they they have drawn a pretty hard line in the sand here, right? Basically what they're saying to Jesus is that these tax collectors, they they don't deserve your time. They, They don't deserve your salvation. They are outsiders. And so for you to associate with them is beneath you socially, but it's also morally wrong. These are people who are corrupt. And for you to share a table with them is a wrong thing to do. Now, on the other hand, what else are they saying? The people that you need to hang out with is who? It's us. Because we are holy, we are righteous, we, we know the law, we keep the law, we, we have everything together. And so if you're going to hang out with anybody, it needs to be us Pharisees. They are unworthy, but we are worthy of your time. Now, just saying that, we, we all squirm a little bit, right? We know that the Pharisees are wrong. But before we give them too hard of a time, let me ask you a question. How often are we in the church more like these Pharisees than we would really care to admit? If right now somebody were to walk through those doors, somebody as disdained, somebody who had treated people that you knew as poorly as Levi had treated all of the Jews, they were to walk in right now, what would you think? better yet if they were to walk in and sit down in your pew next to you what would you think would you think man i'm gonna take this guy home and we're gonna go have supper together we're gonna go eat lunch we're gonna go to el agave we're gonna have a great lunch together is that what you would think i'll be honest with you if my own heart is indeed any indication i think our reaction would be a lot more like the pharisees than it would be like christ I think most of us would probably think, what are they doing here? What is that person doing in our church? I'm not going to share a meal with them. I'm not even going to invite them in our home. Friends, what does Christ remind us of here? What does he reveal to us of who it is that he has come to save? Look there at verse 31 and 32. It says, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. Sinners to repentance. It's not those who think they are socially acceptable. It's not those who think they are all buttoned up and have it all together. It's not those who think they have all of their theology, the tightest, who think they have it all figured out that Jesus has come to save. It's sinners That Jesus has come to save those who are sick. Those who are sinful. Those who are lying and cheating thieves like Levi. That's who Jesus comes and eats with. That's who he comes to redeem. And again, as Ben reminded us, thank God that that's the case. Because who is this a description of? Every single one of us. We are all those liars and thieves. We are all those cheaters just like Levi. Apart from Christ, there is no us in here and the bad people out there. Apart from Christ, there is only us and there is a holy and righteous God. There is us, a fallen humanity, and there is a holy God. Apart from him, we're all wretched. We're all lost. Again, we're all Levi, we're all Thomas, we're all Paul, the chief of sinners. Now that truth, the truth that that is who we are should change us. It should change the way we view ourselves, obviously, but it should also change the way we go out into the world. It should change the way we do evangelism. We live in a world that is lost And dying, a world of people just like me and you, who apart from Christ will never know salvation. How can we who know the truth not look out and see ourselves? How can we not see those who are hurting, those who are in despair, those who are hopeless? Think about the world that we live in and how much of that we see going around. Again, calls for justice, calls for peace, calls for all of these things that are right and good, things that God declares we need justice, we need peace. But apart from Him, we'll never find. How can we look out at that world and not get outside of these four walls and take the words of life to them? Because the truth is, to whatever extent we don't do that, we are wrong. That's just flat out. We can say it. We are wrong to whatever extent we don't try to go out into the community and tell people about Jesus, about what he has done. We are failing to, to do what he called us all to do in Matthew 28. Go out and make disciples of all men. But not only that, not only are we wrong, but we are also showing the truth of our hearts. We're showing how much we really appreciate what Christ has done for us. I remember many many years ago. Now I guess uh, when the when the iPhone first came out, Ryan was the first person that I knew that had one, and I remember originally thinking this is the most useless thing I've ever heard of. And then I saw it, and it had all these great apps on it. It had all these cool things you could do. You could get on the internet. You could have all of your music right there. You could talk on the phone. It was really great. And I remember thinking that's all we talked about for like months how awesome this thing is right now it's just what we have and you have to have it but then it was the greatest thing ever right since sliced bread it was awesome and so we talked about it our lives were in to some degree consumed by it friends our actions our words they should reflect the same with jesus he is far greater than anything else in our lives. He's far greater than any phone. He's far greater than, than any relationship. He is far greater than anything we can possibly imagine. And so if that is the case, how can we keep from speaking about it? Think about that John and, and Peter in Acts chapter 4. You remember they just healed the leper in Acts chapter 3. No, not the leper, the, the man that was lame. And they go before the Jews because the Jews are mad that they're doing these things. And they say, hey, look, we can't really persecute you, but you've got to stop talking about Jesus. So you remember what Peter says? He says, look, you may tell us that, but we have no choice but to talk about all that we have seen and all that we have heard. We can't help but speak about these things. Friends, that should be the testimony of all of our lives. We can't help but talk about the goodness and the grace of and the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. We should not be able to help but be like Levi, going out and finding sinners and saying, hey, come in here. Come to our homes. Come to our church. Let me tell you the truth, that Jesus has come to save people, just like me and just like you, people who are lost, people who need a Savior. So, first, we see feasting here, right? They're gathered around the table. They're all feasting together. Secondly, and quickly, I want you to see the the fasting here in in this passage. and You see that there in verses 33 through 38. Now, it seems that that all of this should have been enough to prick the, the cold, arrogant hearts of the Pharisees. But instead of repenting... We see them come back with a second objection there in verse 33. They say the disciples of John fast often and they offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, they eat and they drink. Now it's almost comical that their first objection was to Christ and his disciples eating and now they're feasting and now their second uh, objection is to them eating at all, right? Right? They first object to them eating with sinners, and now they object to them eating at all. It's a good picture of our sinful hearts, right? Jesus was right when he said he's not going to give us signs because signs wouldn't help anything. We still wouldn't believe. Our hearts are always longing for something else. But for these men, even for the disciples of John the Baptist, fasting is an important part of their religious lives. They had committed themselves to discipline, to self-sacrifice, and they had done it all in the name of religion, all with the goal of reaching kind of this higher spiritual plane. They really believed that that all of their self-denial made them holy. It made them more righteous than the man next to them. Now, we have to pause there just for a second because I think there's a tension that, that we all feel when we hear those words because when we open our bibles we find that self-denial is something that christ calls us to right we've already seen him fasting there in the desert we're going to see him later on calling his disciples to deny themselves to take up their cross and to follow him it's clear that at least a good portion of the christian life is self-denial right it's putting our sin to death. It's mortification of sin. It's denying those fleshly things that are so appealing to us. And so the question is, is, is what's the problem here? Why, why is Jesus opposed to what these Pharisees are saying? Again, it's that idea that, that fasting can merit them anything. It's the idea for us that, that coming here on a regular occasion, that, that reading our Bibles... That that praying that doing the things that Christ calls us to can can make us holy can can merit His pleasure is the truth is is none of it can when we stand before His throne it will be Jesus and His righteousness that saves us or it will be nothing right. It's only in him that we can stand. It's only in him that we can be righteous. Look, I'm not saying that, that coming to church and reading our Bible and praying is a wrong thing to do. We know it's not. But this idea of it getting us to heaven, this idea of it saving us, that's a problem that we all face. What Jesus does is he frees us from legalism. He frees us from that idea that we have to do these things in order for him to love us. if we do it or if we don't, it doesn't change the way he sees us. But he also frees us to do those things in a way that is loving. Because we know what he has done. Our hearts long to know him better. So we do study. We do show up here. We do the things that he has called us to do. Not because it's going to save us because we love our God. We love our Savior. And so the Pharisees, that they miss that point. And so Jesus says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, what's the point that he's trying to say? Well, we just had a wedding here a couple weeks ago, right? And a wedding is a fun thing. Weddings should be a fun thing. I don't know how fun they are for the bride's father and some of those folks but they should be fun it should be celebration and joy and singing and dancing all of that good food Jesus says well when the bridegroom is there you celebrate right you do all of those things but then he says there's a time coming when the bridegroom will not be here and then fasting will come now we can't miss that this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus declares his death That he saves Levi, he saves Peter, he saves all of those folks, knowing good and well what's coming, knowing what he will face because of their sin. He's eating with sinners, knowing he will die for their sin. See that here already? He says, Then his disciples will fast. That leaves us with the question what about us? Are we to feast? Are we to fast? And the answer is yes. The answer is both. In a sense, we we feast, right? Again, last Thursday, we had the Lord's Supper. And we feast at that table. Friends, we rejoice. We come with our sin. We confess it. But when we realize what Christ has done, that is a time of rejoicing. A time where we praise our Savior for what He has done for us. But then we also live in that tension, right? The, the, The fact that He has come but he is still to come. And so there's a sense where we fast as we wait for that physical presence, for the salvation to be made complete. We feast for the already, and we fast for, for the not yet. And so Christ gives us this example, and then he finishes it up with, with a parable. That's really three parables in one, and we're out of time, and so we don't, we're not going to look at this closely, but just notice, r- real quick, in 36 and 39, notice the theme of all three of these little stories that, that he gives us. And each one you have the mixture of something new with something old. And it doesn't work out, right? The first is the mixture of the new garment that's patched onto an old. And he says it's going to tear the new garment. The old garment's not going to hold up. It's not going to be worth anything. And he says if you put new wine into old wineskins, the, the the wine wineskins will burst. And then that last example is harder for us to follow, but what he's saying is that most of the time people will drink old wine and they won't ever get to the new because they'll say, oh, the old wine tastes pretty good, right? They won't ever taste anything new. They won't try new things because they think the old is satisfying. It's good enough. But his point is that the new covenant has come and the old is passing away. The old is worn out. We need to look to the new. These Jews are rooted in the old ways, but in Christ, the new has come. The bridegroom has arrived. And he hasn't come just to to patch up the old or pour new into old. No, he has come to satisfy. He has come to fulfill. And so the Pharisees, and really for all of us today, the the question is, is, will we look to the new? to the new salvation that Christ has brought. Again, he's not a patch to to cover up the holes in our lives, just to merely kind of still have that old way of life, and he just kind of covers up the bad spots. That's not what he's come to do. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's not something new that we can pour into our old circumstances. Uh, He is the container. He's the whole world view. Again, he is that bridegroom the one who saves even the worst of sinners, the one who has made us his church, his bride. He is the one who brings joy and fasting and feasting and celebration. Friends, He is the new wine, And so I ask simply, will you taste and see today? Will you taste and see that he truly is good? Will you feast on this savior today as we pray together? Father, we Thank you. We rejoice at the truth of these words. They are so simple and familiar to us, but they are profound. Uh, That Jesus has come to save sinners. He has come to save even the worst of us. There's no sin that is too great. Uh, There's no action in our lives that we have taken that would turn him away from us. Uh, He has loved us with so great a love that he sees it all, and he loves us still, and he died in our place. And so I pray... Uh, that you would work that salvation out in our hearts, that you would be pleased to, to call us, that you would be pleased to make us your own, to transform our lives so that we can go out in the world with a new purpose, a purpose that is not focused inwardly on ourselves, but is focused on others, but primarily focused on what you have done, what you continue to do, bring salvation into a lost and dying world. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to do that here among us, out in our community and all over the world.